Melville, Faulkner. Yes. Mel- Who are you talking about? Melville. Yeah. Faulkner also uses a lot of semicolons. Yeah. So was that like the trend, the literary writing style at the time, or no? No. It's it's funny you say that, Candy. I, if 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 I were to make a general observation, and yeah. yours is general, I know. So if I were to make a general observation, I'd say that Melville's language is closer to. English because we're still under an English okay. past, so there's there's a little bit of a formality, but Melville's already moving towards an American idiom. I think I mentioned this before that this period that we've been in with Melville is really important because it's it's during the 19th century with people like Cooper and James Fenimore Cooper with uh, Deerslayer novels and um, Hawthorne and Melville that American writers are beginning to be aware that they have to find a language of their own or the break with England will not have been complete. But when in some ways we will still be trying to be something we're not, I think is the best way to put it. So Walt Whitman is one of the most important figures of the 19th century, even if you don't like him as a poet. I mean, I, I've got reservations about him, but the things that he did with poetry mark a boundary where we can begin to say, we are coming into our own language and in some sense coming to realize something peculiar to us as, as a nation. By the time we get to Faulkner, it seems to me, that's in full bloom. I mean, um, Faulkner's language doesn't even, in my mind, doesn't even resemble Melville's. I mean, he will go on and on and on with run-on sentences and you, and you know that he's much closer to a spoken idiom. He's not only speaking in a black idiom, he's using the black language. But if you look at the structure of his sentences and the informality of the fact that sometimes he doesn't use punctuation or um, caps to begin a sentence in the very opening, I'm going I'm to mention that when we look at it, you'll see that he's speaking, I've got to wait on this because it, it has to do with the open, but he, this is so important, I mean you just touched on something so important to this book. We can watch him faithfully speak out of an American culture while he's also creating it at the same time. He's making it possible for people to do something that had not been done before the way he'd done it. So, and I know that sounds, it may sound contradictory, but to me it was more like a paradox. He's coming out of something American, so it reflects an American character, but he's taken it much farther than anybody had before. So he's, he's, he's being creative in a way that nobody had before he wrote. He's doing things with language that nobody had done, and, and with storytelling. If you put Hemingway's, Hemingway's stories next to Faulkner, because they were contemporaries with each Hemingway repeats himself again and again and again and again and again. Faulkner never does. Every novel has a different form. He's always doing something new. Um, always, um, the form of it. If, when we, if we, if we stay together through this and do the trilogy, you'll see the Hamlet, the town, and the mansion in structure, in their form, are completely different from one another. It's just amazing what he does. Just truly amazing. Um, remember that line. I'm going to go out on a limb here. You probably will, but for those of you here, when we did Dante, when we did the Purgatorio at the top of the Purgatorio. There was that passage where Dante was dealing with the nature of poetry, and if you remember, there were three kinds of poetry. 
the extreme Platonists who are too much in their heads, and the, something like the pornographers, the ones who were too involved in the sensuous experiences of man, and Dante was right in the middle. That he knew that there was something both sides had to offer, but he had to reconcile them. He's following Thomas and doing that, the mean, or, or Aristotle, the mean. To go to the, either of those extremes and stay there is to miss something. To be in the middle means you incorporate both. Things that are of the body, things that are too idealistic. But it's in that section where he says, I can't remember the lines, but I write what I hear the Spirit speaking to me. Now think of the courage that that takes, because if, you if you're English, you tend to be a perfectionist about the way you write. Everything, everything has to seem complete. Faulkner had the courage to... No, that's Dante. You mean the, that I write what the Spirit tells me? That's Dante. But what I'm saying is Faulkner does that. If you watch his language, it's just... Um, he had the courage somehow to avoid the sin of being over, overly scrupulous about his art. He was a great enough artist that he went. And what he managed to do that way never duplicated itself. If we, if, we do the, if we do the novels, that I'm, if we do Sound and the Fury and the trilogy, the Stump trilogy, you'll see every one of them. And they'll be very, very different from, from, from Good on Moses. They're, they're so different. I don't know if that answered your question, Candy. It does. It sounds like it's the style is a carryover from the English. Early, when Melville's time, yeah. you can see writers still writing under the influence of an English culture. But they're already beginning to break from it. Hawthorne and Melville are doing something new, but there's a formality, an, art, an articulateness a, to the style that looks back to England, but it's already making a break. By the time you get to Faulkner, that break is over. We, we, are, we, are, reading, we, are, we are reading people who, who are not only, who not only broken from England, but who are thoroughly American who are revealing something to us as Americans that's very different from anything English. You'll never find this stuff in England. Nothing like this. Not just in terms of the style, but in what they're doing. Remember I told you that nobody dealt with, England didn't deal with religious things the way Melville and Hawthorne did. They are penetrating the human soul. They're going into the depths of our human character in a way England is not doing. Remember we talked about Dickens, Jane Austen, whom I love. God doesn't appear in those novels anywhere, virtually. Um, what's going on in America is deeply, profoundly, uniquely religious, spiritual. But there wasn't any, I mean, there was no English spelling either, though, in, the, in, in Melville. I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. there were words that basically mm -hmm. the, you know, the, mm -hmm. were they? The, right. There may have been a little bit, but I, and, you know, and I, I'm not enough pretty, of a scholar pretty, to go pretty, back, but. Pretty, pretty, pretty yep. slight, I mean, yep. I, uh, yeah. If, if, and if, they, if there was by that time, they would have amended it. Yeah. And the changes would have been small. Bob, uh, is what you speak of um, related in any way to a timing issue? In other words, as the American novel began to establish itself and open up new ways of looking at things and new, new things to look at, did the British do that, but at a later time? Have they, have they migrated to something different? Just change our past. Say your response out loud, okay? Or are the English still stuck in their formality? 
there's what would you say? Well, Answer Carl. I haven't read any, I haven't oh. read any current yeah. English literature, yeah. but I'm, now I know why I didn't like the Bontes and, <laughs> and all those guys over there. Um, see, I love it. I, Withering Heights to me is an extraordinary novel. I think the answer to that is, um, I mean, it's, I think it's probably Candy's. If you look at, there is still a, a decency and a formality that's, remember we talked about this, this the doubling, the Dickens, that it, it's like that English decor, sense of decorum um, inhibited the, the English artist from risking deeper things. And that's not to say that they don't do it, because they do, but but there's still a fundamental difference. If, if you look at the music coming out of England or the de detective stories, because English, England is famous for them, compare them to stuff going on in the northern, the northern world or in America, they look, they're always decorous, quaint, proper. It's, it's, I mean, there's an element of the grotesque, of the violent, of the sacred, and the disturbances of it in American literature. It's very, very different. But to pick up what, I mean, this is too big to go into, right? We've got to, we've got to get to Faulkner. But an interesting, just an interesting side note. Um, when Faulkner first went into print, people loved him. And there were a couple of critics who immediately saw um, what he was doing and how important it was. Um, and Faulkner went into print all over the world. Ten years later, he was out of print. Um, and I think it's because, he, he, if you, you know because you read, he doesn't tell stories the way 19th century writers do. There's no omniscient narrator taking you through things. He presents something and you have to work things out. So um, after 10, 15 years, he went out of favor. And then maybe 20, 30 years later, he came back into favor. But, but it's interesting to think about what happened during that time because lots of writers all over the world were tremendously influenced by what Faulkner did. He's probably the greatest storyteller of the 20th century. South American storytellers are famous for learning from him, European storytellers. And, and by the way, it's important to say Faulkner learned a lot from Joyce, who was English, Irish. Um, he couldn't have done what he did without Joyce. But he, he does things with stories that Joyce Joyce never did. Let's start. Let's start. Um, anybody want to include anybody in prayers tonight? <coughs> in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of this day, the gift of this time with each other. Um, how amazing, truly, um, to share this, I don't like the word journey, but it's what it is to have gathered together for this long period to give ourselves to this work, um, to learn, um, and the trust that, that what, we, what we learn is something we could bring to our world and um, help us live our faith. So for all the ways in which this work together has strengthened us in our ways of seeing things, hopefully opened our hearts, um, strengthened us in our efforts to try to bring you to what we do. And we give you thanks, especially for the writers 
we've been reading. I ask for a blessing on all of us in this um, last week of Easter. Just, I mean, of Lent. Um, strengthen us in our um, in our efforts to put away our sins, to to take on a penance each of us, to answer our sins, um, so that we can move closer to you, um, become more deeply a part of the life you call us to. Um, and I ask that all of us um, go deep enough into our hearts, um, there where we meet you, so that on Easter we will know a greater joy in sharing the resurrection, a resurrected life with you and with each other. Let this be. We ask all of this um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. All of you have a blessed Easter. Okay. You too. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I want to take just a couple of minutes um, to quickly, um, in the spirit of reviewing, I want to, I mean, we just spent 10 weeks on, on Melville, so um, what can we do in a few minutes to sum a book? I don't, want to, I don't want to try to do that. What I'd like to do is just go back to those questions that, I, that um, we were struggling with when we ended last time and just make a comment, a brief comment on each of them. Why is Ishmael the survivor of the, the catastrophe, the wreck at the end? Is, Ish, is um, Ahab damned? How are we to look at what happens to him? You know from the questions that I put to you guys, my own um, confused thinking about him. I don't know what else to say. If we look at Ahab from the perspective of the world that produced him, um, it seems to me it raises queer qu clear questions about whether he's damned or not. I mean, he looks like a damn tragic figure. Um, and yet if we look at the nature of that culture, it's really difficult to see. And, and I added to that problematic question, the, what to me is the larger question, how do we look at him as Catholics? We don't hold the Calvinistic views of the, of the culture that he came out of. If Ahab is um, is a damn figure, and even if he's not, if he's a product of a culture which, which sees that some people are predestined to damnation, and he's struggling with these questions of free will and predetermination and suffering and wounds, um, how do we think the God that we understand God to be, how does he look at, you know, how would he look at a man like this? So. Um, the, the beauty of doing this work again for me, at least I, with you guys, and I hope it's been so for you, is to see that Ahab is a product of our culture. He really is an image of something in us that's American, and it's left us with a problem that I, I, I'm not aware of in any other book in literature that I've read. I, I hope I've been clear about that. In every other work that we've read, every other epic, the hero is always answering some bad. Um, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, um, Othello, Hamlet. The tragic hero is always given to a kind of pride, what Aristotle called um, hubris or a, a hamartia, a, a missing the target, doing something just slightly off. Um, 
but the tragic hero always has a moment of recognition and experiences a turn. He, he sees something wrong in what he, the way he was living, the way he was perceiving things, whether it's Oedipus or any of the heroes um, we've read. Um, Ahab's in a different situation. Um, he's, not, he's not dealing with an, well, <laughs> he's not dealing with a person who's wronged him. He's dealing with a nature that according to his own beliefs may be inherently evil. And he wants to strike back at it to get back at it. Now it raises all sorts of questions. Does he go to extremes? Does he commit a blasphemy? I'm not aware of any moral code that he breaks in his own mind. In, in his mind, if, if, if people are either predetermined to go to heaven or go to hell, what's the moral code on which he acts? What do people do in that world? I mean, it's just it's such a confused, torturous world. So at least for me, I'm really grateful to have done this again for the new lights I came to on it. I hope, I hope that was true for you because in my mind it, it shows us something very important about the American character that we still live with. It's a part of who we are. Why is Ishmael saved to tell the story? And where is Christ? A couple of things to say about Ishmael. Remember that the book opens, remember, remember that in all of the epics that we've read, Sing Muse, the, man, or the, um, the Anger of Achilles, Sing Muse, the Man of Many Ways, Sing Muse, the, of the Fugitive, the Outcast you know, from Troy, Aeneas. Every one of those openings of an, of an epic represents the formality of a higher class, an aristocratic class, an, arist an aristocrat class, an aristocratic class. Because they represent the nobility of um, a higher order of people, whether it was during the Greek times or the Roman times or even Dante. By the time Dante comes um, in the middle of my life, the epic opening is already dropping. It's a middle class. Dante's an ordinary man. He's not an aristocrat. He belongs to a commercial regime. We can see that the epic is changing its nature. By the time we get to Moby Dick, we're no longer in that aristocratic world, the English-European. Call Me Ishmael is the most informal opening of any book we've read. <coughs> so that's important in itself to note. Call Me Ishmael. That's so informal. But the other thing to note about it is he says, Call Me Ishmael, which means Ishmael's not his name. He's somebody else. He's taking on the name Ishmael as a way of making it clear that he's um, the outcast one. That he, his identity, he can no longer identify himself with this Christian people and its failed hypocrisies. He's come to show us something that this Christian people apparently no longer sees. So he's a Jonah figure. He's leaving that. Call me Ishmael. He's the outcast one. He's come back to tell a story to help a people see something about him, themselves that they don't see. And the opening, Call Me Ishmael, means he's taken on a new identity in order to fulfill this new calling. To see as the outcast. What his name was, we don't know. And what we do know is this is an identity. It's a way of standing outside this Christian culture with its failings and revealing it. Um, so he's come back to tell the Ninevites, us, something important for us to learn. Where is Christ? Um, 
it, it seems to me that we can find them in, in a number of places. Um, one of the ways, one of the persons in, it, in whom he's most present, I think, is Pip. Um, he's there in Starbuck. It seems to me Christ is present in a lot of people. Whether he's betrayed or not, or or abandoned, I'm going to leave that up. I mean, I, I take Starbucks seriously. He's a, I think he's a respectable Christian. I don't think he realizes how much he undermines his own faith any more than the people in that culture. I mean, the whole culture has, in some ways, lost its bearing. Pip is a wonderful image of Christ in some ways because he's thrown out of that culture, and so he stands outside of it. He stands outside of himself. He's a dissociated person. But he's had, a, he's had a vision of something nobody else sees. Um, the person, it seems to me, in whom Christ is most present is, is Ishmael. Um, and I say that for a number of reasons. One is because he's the, he's the one person that is most open to being, to the logos, the, the goodness of nature. Um, the one thing that sets him off from Ahab is his openness to things. If we tie that together with all the the um, peripeteas that he undergoes, the turns. Remember, my splintered heart softened in, in the, uh, that early chapter. I can't remember which one it was, when he and Ishmael are quick in bed. Then the, uh, the, the monkey rope scene, where he's tied to quick <coughs> and he knows he could go down, and he has that important revelation. The uh, spermaceti scene, where he's wringing hands and looks into everybody's eyes with love. And that happens about the Triworks episode. It's close to that, remember, when we get this real revelation that there's something hellish about this whole enterprise, that it's rushing towards hell. So Ishmael, in some ways, it seems to me, is close to something Christ-like. I want to say that he's more Christ-like in one important respect, and it's this. In all the reading that I've done in all my literature, I, I don't know of any other character in literature that carries within himself a tragic figure. If you look at drama, which, which is the exemplary form of tragedy, if you look at tragedy, heroes are unto themselves. They're not, they're not a part of a narrative. They're drama, right? They, they, live, they, they act out their tragic actions, Oedipus, Lear, whoever you want to mention. In this story, we get Ahab's tragic story from Ishmael. We wouldn't know it except for him. So Ishmael carries Ahab in him. So something of that tragic action is assimilated. It's part of him. That seems to me to be a Christ-bearing act. He carries him. We wouldn't know. If he's come back to tell us something, he couldn't tell us unless he bore him in within himself, and he does. Or he couldn't tell the story as well as he does. Is that clear? This is not a drama. This is a narrative. We only, we only know of Ahab's tragedy because Ishmael tells it to us. So he carries that whole action inside of him. And in that sense, in that sense it seems to me the story itself as a form is Christ-like. You know that I've been talking about the nature of poetry since we began. Remember from John that Christ is the Word, in the beginning is the Word. If you remember from Dante in the Paradiso, Dante has all these passages where he talks about 
the form of, with, it, is it really clear? Is it clear to everybody? The opposite of form is formless. There's nothing there. Okay? Christ is at the center of everything form-giving. He's the source of it all, so that in some way he's implicitly present in anything form-giving. The opposite of that is formless. It's nothing. It doesn't exist. So the form of the work itself, the very form, this story that's passed on to us in sense, implies the word Christ giving form. If you add to that the, what I'm going to call the love of Ishmael, what he, what he brings in his story, the love that he's learned, that's a part of his story, that's shown in his openness to things, how receptive he is to things, we can say of the nature of that form that it's motivated by love, truth, beauty, goodness, or we wouldn't have the story as we have it. This would be like a grant that they're you're saying form being as opposed to randomness. When you say formless, I mean right. that that there isn't. I mean that makes sense with regard to evolution and all right. the things, which is not right. Okay. Right. Uh, right. So it seems to me we can see Christ in a number of ways, and I'm, the reason I'm saying this tonight is because so often we you know, we associate Christ with a figure. If there's no man there, he's not there. But that can't be true. If Christ is the means of creation, then the Logos <coughs> is present everywhere in creation. Do we see it? I mean, you know that one of the burdens that I've taken on myself from the beginning is to try to read these lyrics that make us aware of, in a bird. Remember Hopkins' poem, The Wind Hover? In a bird, in a fire, in the girl pricking her finger. We've been finding Christ everywhere. Seems to me Christ is not only in Ishmael, he is in, he's behind the form of this work where we wouldn't have it. So, um, okay. Now, one last thing before we start, go down Moses. Interesting thought that I had the other day, just putting, I mean, thinking about what we we're going to do tonight. One of the things I wanted, I've been talking about poetry, I'm always. <coughs> I feel like I'm a salesman here. Um, um, I've constantly been trying to offer reflections on the nature of poetry to show you that it, it has its own form of knowledge. It's unique in what it gives us, and it's so hard to get a hold of and, and elusive and mysterious in some ways, um, but it's there nevertheless. Um, interesting thought for you guys, just to pass it on to you. Um, it seems to me one of the values of the humanist literature that we've been reading, and I'm saying humanist, the only one that was explicitly Catholic or Christian was Dante. Every other work we've read was either pagan or I'm going to say humanist. It, I mean, I, it seems to me uh, Melville and um, Hawthorne are Christian, but, but if we take Ishmael's name seriously, we have to wonder what where is Melville on this question? I can't answer it, I don't want to get into it. But I want to use that term, even if it's not completely accurate tonight, the word humanism. And I mean the word humanism in the sense that Aristotle would have used it, that, that it's, it doesn't refer to anything explicitly supernatural, as it would for us as Christians, we believe in a God, and we believe in Christ. I mean humanism in the sense that Aristotle would have used it this way. Fully human, what other potentials are? We are animal, 
we belong to the animal kingdom, but there is something in our nature, in our capacity to know and love that raises us above animals. But there is something in us that breathes above time, that is transcendent in our soul. Plato saw that, Aristotle saw it. So I mean humanist in that sense. There's an amazing thing that humanist literature does for us, and it troubles me that Catholics don't do this. Put this out as complaint here, but and it's this. One of the great gifts that this literature is for us is that it constantly critiques us. It reveals us to ourselves. We've gone through all these stories. We learn to see men as they really are and put them together next to each other and we learn to see more clearly their virtues and their faults, very concretely. What help do we get from within the church to do that? We're asked to practice an examination of conscience, but how concretely can we make it when we enter into these works, we're constantly getting critiques of injustices, wrongs, disorders, and we see them very clearly. So these works are constantly giving us images of, of the best renditions of ourselves and the worst, so that we learn to see more clearly those aspects about who we are as human beings. It's one of the gifts that they give us, one of the values. And humanism, that, in some ways, that almost seems to go on in a better way in the humanist world, is because it's so preoccupied with injustices and justice. It's as if once you, once you enter a, a Christian community, you begin to take that for granted and go to sleep. These people don't go to sleep. Scripture does, but no, no, I don't want, and I don't want to, I really don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to object to that too strongly, um, Candy, but remember, just, just as an example, remember when we talked about the, um, um, David and, um, Bathsheba, and what was the husband's name, Hekiah, Uriah, Uriah, remember we talked about that, um, after he sleeps with, um, Bathsheba, he sends him out on the doorstep. We, we, there's nothing said. He says, go sleep on the doorstep. We're left to deduce or infer what's going on, but it's not worked out. There has to be something terribly cunning and manipulative about David for him to do that. It's not shown. It's not shown at all. I hope that's clear. Right? He's sending him out there to die, and he's protecting himself because um, Bashima may get pregnant. So he's just using him, but there's, we don't get into his mind, we don't see anything. When we get into these books, we, we get things worked out in far more detail, and we actually go into the interior of people. So concretely, we're encouraged to see more clearly the nature of things. So I don't want to take, I'm not, I do, I don't hear me as <laughs> demeaning scripture, because that's not the way I feel at all. What I'm saying is there's a great gift in humanist literature, particularly the great humanist literature, because that's, we've been reading that. My claim all along has been there are intimations of Christ in these things. They're pretty serious in the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. You remember the whole, um, what's the, the return to the Perusia, the Perusia of the action, the coming of Christ. That's almost explicit in those works. So there's a great gift in this literature. It offers really accurate mirrors of ourselves. We learn to see ourselves more clearly. I think it helps us take ourselves on a little bit better, I think is what I'm saying. When you go to school, is that what happens? No. 
Are teachers going to do this? No. <laughs> but we're doing it here. And since we're doing it here, I want, I want the best part of this out because it seems to me that's why, why it can be such a good for us, you know, if, if we're reading it closely. Okay. Hmm. We're going now, we're leaving Melville in the north and coming south. Um, a couple of things to start here. Um, a couple of important general thoughts to keep in mind in this shift that we're making from Melville in the north and Faulkner in the south. Um, we talk about ourselves as United Nations and we are a united nation, we are one people, we're Americans. But there's, there's a fundamental, fundamental difference between North and South, and the differences between the two of them really go back to their foundings. Big surprise, because we've seen from the beginning. If you wanna look at, if you wanna understand something, go back to its beginnings. Always go back to its beginnings. And if, you, if you're thinking about this at all, clearly you know that going back to the beginnings doesn't mean just going back to the beginnings of my life or my father's life or his father's life. It means beginnings. Um, what, we, what we discover are some interesting qualities that, that distinguish the, um, the North, the South from the North. The North founding took place in Plymouth, in Plymouth, in 1620, and you all know now, you didn't before, you can't not know it now, that that founding was religious in nature. The Congregationalists, the Separatists, came from Europe to England, the Netherlands, to here, to found a city on a hill, um, to become a Christian people in order to practice their faith in freedom. That was the nature, so its deepest inspirations were religious. In time, they had to make accommodations to financial, economic interests. They underwent a lot of death. People suffered. They died. Um, um, an economic element um, in, um, entered into the, the character of the northern founding when people began to realize that um, Plymouth would be a source of fur trade and other kinds of trades back in Europe. So people began to invest money, and it changed over time. But, Originally, it, its, its founding was religious. The Jamestown founding um, took place in 1607, and it was fundamentally economic. They came to found um, plantations and grow things. So the nature of the Jamestown, the southern culture, was from the beginnings a plantation economic um, um, founding, okay? Um, it's been a long time since I read it, but if I remember correctly, when, um, when Daniel Defoe wrote, um, it's not Robinson Crusoe, but Maul Flanders, when Maul, I think if I remember correctly, it's been ages, she was sent to prison, and she was actually sent over to America as a part of that early founding, so even Defoe was playing with that then. So the South is fundamentally economic. Now, we've seen the importance of Calvin in the North. Calvin is still present in the South, um, but we'll have, to, we'll have to look at that as we go along. 
As we saw from Moby Dick, the northern culture was highly competitive. It saw as its um, aim um, um, making its living on attacking things in nature, violently going after it. The, the descriptions around Peleg and Bildad as Quakers, the ironies of that we've already looked. Highly competitive, highly individualistic. When we went into Father Mapple's chapel, chapel, remember, all the people were alone. The men on board the Pequot are all called isolados. They're from everywhere. So the North is industrial, individualistic, highly competitive. There's something, something of that religious fervor was directed towards economic concerns and it, become, it became very aggressive at getting ahead, mastering nature. As a matter of fact, part of the incentive was if you're among the saved, you showed you were among the saved by how energetically you could go at things. So this tremendous religious energy was put to those business activities. The South was economic originally, so it was far more pragmatic and agrarian and communal. The South is far more communal. If you look at all these stories, the Moby Dick is fun, whatever else you say it's about, it's fundamentally about two very separate individuals who don't connect, Ishmael, Ahab. We, I, I don't think we can do anything but admire Ishmael in some ways, at least I admire Ahab. I mean, they're extraordinary figures. But we never get a sense of a community. That they're a part of, Ishmael is alone. He survives alone. He comes back alone. The South is agrarian. It's communal. We do not read a story except for Pendleton's and Black. <coughs> There's no story, except, and I'll come back to that in a minute. There's no story except Pendleton and Black that isn't about a people coming together. It is fundamentally comic. The North is tragic, if we look at Ahab. The South is agrarian, communal, comic. There's not a story that takes place in Go Down Moses that doesn't deal with community people struggling. Even if they have headaches with each other, Rod Edmund wants to kill Lucas every other page. He'd like to ring him up. And Lucas, Lucas wants to kill Roth, and he almost in fact, he sets out to kill Zach in that. If you know, if, you, if you've read uh, Fire in the Hearth, you know that he sets out to kill him because he thinks he slept with his wife. The, the spiritual underpinnings of the North is metaphysical, it's religious. Ahab wants to know the ultimate ends of things. So does Ishmael. Every, every chapter, which for the, the center part of the book, shows Ishmael contemplating the nature of things. The South is pragmatic. It's not metaphysical, it's pragmatic. Its educational interests are looking back to the past to carry the past forward. It's a very aristocratic. The Southern education consists of Latin and Greek. It modeled itself on um, England, the aristocracy. Um, if you were involved in the world of academia today, you know, I think it's probably less true today, but I remember years and years ago just around an educational circuit going from, you know, when you have um, um, conferences, you know, that, it, I mean, one of the sort of common things that people became aware of, it, just because they became aware of education, is that the education in the, in the North wasn't very effective, and the education in the South was, that when people went to school in the South, they learned Greek and Latin, and it was said uniformly everywhere that if you wanted to find a place to write, 
find where people actually learned how to write, go to the South. Part of that is because they were raised on Latin and Greek. Um, so I can remember hearing people at conferences talk about Southern writers and how effective they were and how much that was a part of the education. So, um, could that also be the language differences, though, that existed? The people who came into the North, I mean, later on, certainly, were, you know, in, in that age, were from mostly Eastern Europeans, and the, they, they went mostly North. They didn't go South. Yeah. I sometimes wonder how much of it's religious. If you're really, um, if your identity is with Scripture more, um, it, it produces a different kind of education. If you look at the early schools and the education that most people had, they would have had. There would have been no reason for them to teach Greek and Latin. Mm -hmm. None. They were more interested in learning scripture. Mm -hmm. In the North and South, there was a cultivation of class, and to do yeah. that, you had to go back yeah. to the basis of that, because the roots of the aristocracy were back in Greece and and in Rome. Um, so, a couple of qualities here. One's very metaphysical, intensely religious, um, competitive, um, estranged from nature, wanting to attack nature. In a plantation community, you had to learn to work with nature, to work with the land. Um, even though there's this latent violence everywhere in Go Down Moses, particularly with Lucas and the Edmonds. Um, it's all, it's all controlled. There's a sense of manners and restraint. Um, people are forbearing of one another. They're patient with one another. They put up with one another. We're in a comic world. In the North, that's not so. We're in a tragic world, and we watch it unfold in the story. So I know these are generalizations, and, and they don't always accurately apply. But there are fundamental differences, and it's, it's good to just be aware of some of them. If we put the two works together, they highlight each other intensely. I mean, they come out more dramatically. Um, so we're looking at a very different culture now when we move from the north to the south. Um, Go Down Moses is Faulkner's treatment of the same Abraham-Sarah story that Melville. But look at the differences between them because they're fundamental. Melville took as his central figure a man who called himself Ishmael, who was not Ishmael, where he wouldn't say, call me Ishmael. Right? He's saying, call me Ishmael. He's estranged. He's an outsider. He comes back to tell the people. In Go Down Moses, we are never outside of that culture. We're always one with it. And Faulkner is giving us the Isaac story. And remember, I don't want to do this here, but you remember, Abraham um, was told by God that he would, he would have a child named Isaac and he would be the child of promise. That he would be the one who would continue the, the covenant, the promise. So Moby Dick deals with the outcast one. Go down Moses deals with the child of promise. They both go back to scripture. They're both rooted in scripture. The interesting, I don't want to give things away here. I've got to be really careful because I do not like giving things away. How do, how do I do this? How do I do this? Let me just say that, that um, Melville finds something attractive about Ishmael. It's his way of holding on to the child of promise 
because Ishmael is the outside one, without crediting it. The Christian culture has failed. Moby Dick is a revelation, a reflection of that failure, but it's told from the perspective of somebody who stepped outside of it. And go down Moses, where the central character is Isaac. He's the central figure of the work. Everything's about it. And now we have to. Now we're going to have to ask: Is the promise? I, think, I hope I'm not giving away things. Is the promise fulfilled in this book? If this is the promised child, he had a lot to learn from Melville. What did he learn? Is Isaac the promised child? Is the promise fulfilled here? I'd like to put that question out. That'll be one of the major questions of the book. It'll be, it'll be like the Ishmael question. Who's Ishmael and why Ishmael? Why Isaac? Why did, what, is Faulk, what is Faulkner showing us about our Christian identity in the way that Melville did in uh, Moby Dick? I've got these themes down here, but part of me, well, let me put them out here and see. I'm a little bit reluctant because it seems to me these give things away, but um, it seems to me the great sin of the North um, is pride and, and the metaphysical nature that it takes, particularly with um, Ahab. It's intellectual pride, it's, it's Lucifer's sin. Um, it seems to me that it's present in the South, but it takes a very different form. The form of the sin of the, in the South is this sense of possessiveness that comes from owning the land. And I think you can probably begin to see that right from the outset of the book. The, the, the plantation colonies came in and settled the land and took it over. And you know how important this is in the book because that land gets passed on. The McCaslins are the owners. Um, the slaves own a part of it and nobody can get free of that. Um, the one thing that stays with us through this book is the influence of the past and this sense that the, the land is owned, it's passed on. Now, early or in the middle of the novel, we're going to reach a point. We'll, I think you already know about it because it's announced in the beginning. Ike will reach a point in his life where he will give up his inheritance. He will renounce his title to the land. You already know that, so I'm not giving that away. One of the fundamental questions we have to ask, this will be the second one. The first one is the promise fulfilled. The second one will be, should Ike have renounced his heritage? Why does he do it? I'm going to give it partly away here. He, he did it in the hopes that he would stop the sin from being passed on. Because as, as you know from your reading, it goes from generation to generation to generation. He wanted that sin to stop. And he thought the way to do it was to give up the land. By doing that, he answered this sense of possessiveness that, that people have. That we say, it's mine. I want this. The fussiness that we do, the over-fussing, the, the control of it. You know, in Lucas, in the Edmonds, and um, all the disorders that we see that go around this sense of, it's mine, I possess it. Reminds me of Gollum in uh, the Fellowship in the story. So one of the most important sins that we're looking at in this collection is the sin, this sin of possessiveness. Related to that is the sin of slavery, that human beings could say of another person, it's mine. So there's an extension of it in the human realm. 
that humans were encouraged to treat other people as objects. In fact, a whole race. So the whole sin of, um, of miscegenation, of the, of the intermarriage, of, of races using each other, um, mostly the white race using the black race. Um, and that's why that genealogy is, is so important. Um, are they keeping the line pure? Or is it mixed blood? And um, when, the, when the blood is mixed, when, say, old Carruthers um, had an affair with one of the slave women and he produces, you know, Tommy's Turl and Tenny and the rest, um, people are aware of that. Old, old Carruthers um, sets up his, his estate so that part of the money goes to the slaves, to Tenny and Luke, Lucas and others. So. It's, it's really important to carry that heritage forward because it, also, it protects the purity of the race, but it also protects the responsibility people have for each other, even in the midst of these sins. So the, the race relations is at the center of this work. Um, marriage relationships is central. The sexual relationships between man and woman of the same race and mixed races. You can imagine that it's more important here because of the problems they face. One of the most important metaphors that runs through the whole book, the entire book, is the metaphor of the hunt. And it's, I, I want to I use that, I'm using that word deliberately as a metaphor. The first chapter opens with the, with the description of the dogs hunting the fox, tearing through the house, tearing everything up. And it's a wonderful metaphor because it images the chaos behind this hunt. And in some ways, that chaos, even though we, it's confined to the physical hunt, the actual animal hunt, the, the dogs hunting, the, the fox, that same metaphor and the, the field of its metaphors, the confusion and chaos, the violence, is meant to carry over and describe what goes on with Safanzaba and Buck. And I hope it's clear by now how much she was hunting him and how much he was doing everything he could to get away. Yeah? So the, met so the hunt metaphor is really important. It, apply it applies to every single activity in this book. Animals, marriages, the relationship between man and the land. Because what does Lucas do in Fire in the Hearth? He hunts for gold. There isn't, there isn't all the characters, I don't want to use the word predatory, but there is this sense of something aggressive trying to get at something else and get a hold of it whether it's the land or a human being or animals or... So the hunt is a really important metaphor for describing all of these relationships and the spirit of getting a hold of something and making it one's own. Now out of that comes this sense of honor. Do people do it dishonorably or honorably? Clearly old Carruthers McCaslin had an affair with a with a slave woman that was in some sense dishonorable. The question that we're faced with um, Buck and Safan's with the community, or, yeah, is, um, <laughs> and with um, Hubert, Safanzava's brother, is their way of treating Safanzava the woman honorable or dishonorable? And we're gonna look at that in a minute. <coughs> so this question of honor is not small. This whole question of honor, of how one behaves with another, whether one is honorable or not, is deeply a part of the Southern culture, far more than it is for the North, far more. We know that men in the South um, actually carried on duels with each other, even in the 19th century. 
I mean, they would go out and, and dawn and with pistols and mark off their steps and shoot at each other because honor was such a big thing. So there's not a chapter, there's not a story that we read in this that fundamentally doesn't go to some question of honor, particularly male honor, um, and the way they are with each other and the way they are with women. Um, and one last thing um, that has to do with the form, the, the form of the story. Um, who was it? Was it Mary or Candy? Who was it said something about time changing even in the middle of a paragraph? Well, that was me. Jeannie said something, I was, you know, I was asking her, and she said it was a little bit hard to follow because right in the middle of the paragraph, suddenly you're, you wonder where you are again. Um, just, I, I, I touched on this last week, but I want to mention it now. I think, I'm not sure if the word is the right word, I may have it wrong, but I, I think one way of describing what's happening with Faulkner is this, and it shows how much artists have grown in the last hundred years. If you look at novels in the 19th century, up until the 19th century, if you look at most literary works of art, whether it's drama or narrative, if you go back to Sophocles and Oedipus Rex, you know that a, that a plot consists of a series of episodes. Remember, we, we've talked about it. Aristotle calls that an action. The plot is an action. It's an imitation of a spiritual action. Some change inwardly takes place. But the plot up until the 19th century was uniformly um, um, integral, sequential. It moved logically from one thing to another. So it assumed a logical, continuous universe in which sequence makes sense. As we get closer to the modern world, that view of the world gets shattered, it gets fragmented. The world is random, there's no longer an order to it or a purpose, God is out of it. If there's purpose, it implies an intelligence, a God, right? If the random is purposeless, I'm sorry, if reality is random, if events are random, there's no sequence to things, there's no God, there's no purpose. That's the modern view of things. So what we have in modern artists is an intention to cause an effect. There's still sequence, one thing follows another, as they do here in these stories. But oftentimes, the sequence of things is interrupted and we find ourselves in another place, in a past. Because we know that very often what happens in the past can take on a life of its own and intrude into the presence and have a reality that breaks that sequence. Okay? I think the word is asynchronic. Chronic, synchronic means all of the same time. You know, you're in the same period. If you look at all these stories, for the most part, they all take place in 1941-42. That's the time we're in, when we, from beginning to end. But in several of the stories, we go back in time to an earlier time. So we step out of that time into another time. And that past intrudes into the story. Now, I hope that's clear, because here's what's interesting. That means sequence doesn't determine reality or make it. There are other things that are a part of reality that could be spiritual, that are not a part of material cause and effects. In a, is that, in a physical world, one thing follows another. In a world in which spirit 
has a role, something can happen that it can intrude into a sequence of things and suddenly it takes its place there even though the sources of it was 50 years earlier. So we see that reality in the novel isn't just material cause and effect, it's spiritual, psychological. But reality is a far more complicated thing. Is that clear? Yeah. You see a little bit of the merchant Venice in the southern culture. Say. You see a little bit of the merchant of Venice in the southern culture. I mean, the plantation was basically financially unviable without slavery. I mean, there's no way that you run a plantation right. yeah. without free labor. How does it go back and to so, the merchant of Venice? So, in the in the pursuit of that financial uh, objective. You start rationalizing, you know, in your mind. Well, slavery's okay, yeah, because without it, you're not viable. And I mean, the proof was once slavery was abolished, all the plantations were away because they couldn't afford to continue to offer. Yeah. So it was part of that in the Southern culture. But go back and, and well, in, in the Merchant of Venice, it was you know it was all about commercialism, right? You know, worrying about whether your ships were coming back and right. how many ships you had out there. And even more grotesque of that line where Shylock says, a pound of human flesh, what's its worth, meat and goat, you know, the, hum the human person gets lost, degraded. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so one of the things to keep in mind is that if we bring, if we approach this work with the expectation that we're going to be in this neat, world of continuity and logical sequence, we're going to be thrown off. Because what Fogner's showing us is there is continuity reality. We go from Lucas when he was a boy to when he was a man, or Ike when he was a boy to when he was a man. But we know that time crisscrosses. That very often things from the past intersect with times in now and in the future. So that, that, that re reality in terms of a, a, a mixed world of both physical events and spiritual realities is far more complicated. And the writer, the modern writer, is trying to do a greater justice to that fact. And Faulkner is a master of it, as we'll see. Is that clear? So we're not in a world of n n nice and tidy, neat continuity, in, in terms of sequence. In fact, here, let me even put it, I'm going to add a personal note on this. If you, if you think about modern scientists generally, I don't want to, I want to be careful now because the, the company I'm keeping here. Um, but often, in, um, from a scientist's perspective, a scientist will be concerned with um, physical cause and effects. I mean, obviously, otherwise, how do you accomplish anything? You depend on it. To build a bridge, you depend on for anything you're going to do. The one thing that the scientist cannot count on, be, because he's dealing principally with physical realities, is the is the causalities of the spirit, and where those causalities intrude in our life or make their or or what's the word intervene in our lives. Because what physicist is going to make claims for the Holy Spirit? Can a writer do justice to the causalities of the spirit? Can he render that action? So the fact that a poet 
allows himself to work with that reality makes for a greater complication of what he does. So we're bringing different orders of reality, physical, moral, political, historical, but also spiritual, psychological. So that makes the plot, insofar as the plot's trying to reflect reality to adequately give us a story, it makes the plot at times confusing. Just be patient with it, because we're still bound in history, we're still bound in time, we're moving from a past forward, that's a, that's a given in the book. But over the course of that story, we're finding that, that the story consists of multiple kinds of realities, and we have to put them together very often ourselves, and that's a task. But if we're dealing still with 1941-42, I mean, you know, we, what's disruptive to me is when I think of 41, I mean, you know, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I mean, you know, we're, you know, in that, in that, time, that time frame. I mean, that seems like that just added total chaos to the entire bloody world at the time. Except the world has always been at war and all points to be on the verge of it. I mean, there's been no... Religious wars in the 16th, 17th, 18th century were, I mean, people well, could not live without being involved in wars. But, but I mean, you know, I mean, you can say, well, yes, the, the, the Japanese did this because of economic reasons, because they were denied access to oil, or, but at the same time, there was also a religious element that was part of that, I think. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> yes. Uh, yes. Clearly, on that, you know. To that attack in terms of dominance and, and you know the impact on at least our world anyway once they once they cross the ocean yeah go back to Islam a century earlier three centuries before that mm -hmm. I mean, let's let's go to the book think about the difference here at the outset between Moby Dick and go down Moses Moby Dick, call me Ishmael. Clearly that's a distinct person. Even if we don't know his real name, he identifies himself as Ishmael. We're immediately asked to see the story in terms of that biblical story. We're meant to go back to um, Genesis and look at the Abraham story and see that Ishmael was the outcast one. Immediately that shapes our perspective on everything that takes place in Moby Dick. Yes? Let me read this opening page of Good and Moses. Isaac McCaslin, Uncle Ike, passed 70 and nearer 80 than he ever corroborated anymore. A widow now, uncle to half a country and father to no one. Almost no punctuation. I mean, there's a comma, but no caps, no, no cap, large case, no period in that paragraph. No cap beginning. And not only no cap, but what's the antecedent of this? This was not something participated in. What's the antecedent of that? The thing we're talking about. <laughs> Good for you. Is that clear? Wait, by the way, this is sort of, I'm just amazed at what Chuck's about. There's almost nothing more epic because where does every epic begin? In media race. In medias race. Good. Good, Jeannie. Good for you. In medias race. We're in the middle of things. When we're in the middle of things, do we have a clear sense of where we are? Never, never. So Faulkner's already setting us in an epic world. We're back in medias race in the middle of things. What is the middle of things? We've had to read every epic to find out. 
This was not something participated in or even seen himself but by his elder cousin, McCasden Edmonds, grandson of Isaac's father and sister, and so descended by the distaff, yet notwithstanding the inheritor and in his time the bequester. And now hold, listen to the language. Listen to the language. Listen to the language. Notwithstanding the inheritor and in his time the bequester of that which some had thought then and some still thought should have been Isaac's since his was the name in which the title to the land had first been granted from the Indian patent in which some of the descendants of his father's slaves still bore in the land. But Isaac was not one of these, <coughs> a widower these 20 years who in all his life had owned but one object, talks about the cot, um, going over at the top of the, by the way, I'm sorry, our pages are gonna be a page off or so. So I'm gonna give you, Sorry, because I, I can't go through a new book. And I'm going to give you my page ref reference. It'll, they're pretty close. I think we're a page off, so just search for it if you can be patient with me. Go on over or down. I'm not sure where you are. but um, Because he loved the woods who owned no property and never desired to since the earth was no man's but all men's, as light and air and weather were. And we're going to hear from Molly shortly. Why does she want a divorce? She goes to Edmund saying, I want a divorce. And from that point after, we, we talk about it in terms of a divorce. She wants a divorce from Lucas. She wants to be free of him because she knows that the land belongs to God and that Lucas is going mad to try to possess something that's not his. Now, we got this from Dante. God created nature. It's his. Man creates a city, and how did the city come into existence? In attempting to create a life apart from God. We saw that when we did Dante. For those of you, I hope, I hope you were all here when we did that. We all do that with Enoch, remember in the Bible, Enoch founds the first city. Did we do that? Yes, we did. Did we do that? Candy? Here, do we? I, I can't go back, but let me just say that if you read the Bible, Remember, Cain is outcast and Enoch is his son, and Enoch is the founder of the very first city. So the city comes into existence when man is separated from God and tries to create a world on his own. So the, the city is always paradoxical. It's very great because it, it wants to produce this great world, but it's always hubristic, prideful. The city comes into existence. So God is the, creates nature and man creates the city. So the nature belongs to God. It's its home. It's, um, it's where man does his work, but he should be mindful of God there. So one of the questions here is, are the way in which these men use the land, um, what to call it, respectful, pious, careful of God, or we already know, I mean, no, because they're very possessive. Um, Um, himself merely holding it for his wife's sister and her children who had lived in it with him since his wife's death, holding himself welcome to live in one room, he goes on. The sister-in-law and her children during the rest of his and after. No, no punctuation. And again, not something he participated. What is this something? Not something he participated in or even remembered except for the hearing, the listening. Come to him through and from his cousin, McCaslin, born in 1850, 16 years his senior and hence his own father being near 70 when Isaac, 
an only child was born, rather his brother than cousin, and rather his father than either, out of the old time, the old days. God, that's stunning. It seems so casual, we could just read by it, except everything's there. And at the center of it, remember, at the center of this is, since it was, since his was the name in which the title to the land had first been granted from the Indian patent in which none of the descendants of his father's slaves still bore the land. His name was on the patent. He should have received the land. He renounces it. Now that's at the center of this paragraph. So we know central to that paragraph is this act of his, the, the giving up of his inheritance. But what's the this and the something he participated? So clearly for Faulkner, even though that deed, the legal deed, is central to this story, there's something else, this, this, this was not something participated in her. And it's something from the past, out of the old time, the old days. Okay, now let me stop there just for, um, Candy, describe that language. Can you, how would you, how would you characterize it? <laughs> Did you say grammatically, Greg? <laughs> oh, you're so English right now. So proper. <laughs> Anybody want to? Or longer. Oh, you guys have to get over your English selves here. Come on, you're all Americans. It is what it is poetic. It really is. Here, go to go to this line on page. Turn to page two fifty. Um, in my paragraph, I don't know where it says yes, more men than father and uncle buddy. What what paragraph do you have it? Two fifty. And what was the page two fifty? What the words there? The the paragraph begins. Yes, more men than father and uncle buddy. It may be one page later. The two brothers, who as soon as their father was buried, the yellowed pages scrawled and faded. Oh, okay, by the hand. Two forty-eight. Two forty-eight. Thanks, Bob. Look at the bottom of that paragraph that begins. Yes, more men than father and uncle buddy. This is the crucial dialogue of the whole novel. Kaz and Ike are engaged in a debate. It's a courtroom battle, basically. And they're looking at the ledger, and what's at issue is whether Ike should accept his inheritance and be responsible to carry on or give it up. But the, 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 the phrase I want to get to is at the end of that paragraph where, it's, where it says, Brown thin ink in which was recorded the injustice at a little at least of its amelioration and restitution faded, faded back forever into the anonymous communal original dust. Hold on to that line, that phrase, the anonymous communal original dust. It seems to me that's the best description for the, the narrative voice. It's not a person, I'm gonna, actually I'm gonna throw a wrench at you guys here in a second. It's not a person, it's like the Greek chorus it's an anonymous communal. Let me put it this way, call me Ishmael. Everything that happens in Moby Dick is peculiar to him, right? And you'll be following, we're in his mind, we're in his description, right? Who is this narrator? Who is this 
Who, whose voice is this? This was not something participated in or even who is who is speaking? All stories have to have a narrator. Somebody's, or we didn't have a story, right? I mean, the story means some, somebody's narrating it, somebody's telling it. But it doesn't have to be part of the story. Hmm? But it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be something mm-hmm. part of the story. It seems to me the best the best description for describing this narrative voice is that one I just gave you. Mm-hmm. The anonymous communal original dust. Think about the Greek chorus that was represented by one voice. That is, this is the voice of a collective communal character. It's a we, even if it's speaking in the I voice. So why is that important? Well, think about the difference between Moby Dick and this. Then. I mean, the point that I was making earlier is that the South is very agrarian. You, there is a much greater sense of a we in the South that we take our identity from our collective work together than in the North. Can anybody else think of anything else in which a person, a personal voice, represents something larger than himself so that he's speaking for others as well. The Constitution. Yeah, that's good. We the people. Yeah. But, I, yeah, but I'm speaking now of, of a person who actually is still an I speaking as an I. So, run that one by me again. It's an I speaking as an I, but on behalf of the communal? Right. So that he, he carries, he's speaking for more than himself in his I voice. Pope. Pope is good. Go, now, go deeper than the Pope. Go back farther than the Pope, and who do you get to? Christ? So only, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so only one place. Christ, when he speaks to the Father and says, in him you. Here, but I'm going to go for. I mean, it's Christ clearly when he says the Father's in me, and, he, and he's clearly speaking, he's trying to reveal the Father and the Spirit. This, the Holy Spirit, for me, because he does nothing that doesn't carry the Father and the Son in him. Nothing. And think about the, re, the, the filioque question. The, the Son proceeds from the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He has no identity apart from the two people he carries within him. I mean, I'm going to, I'm sorry, the reason I'm doing because the book I'm writing is actually about the Trinity, and I thought when I read this, God, this is one of those perfect expressions of this thing that speaks for this anonymous communal, I love that phrase, this anonymous, there is a, can there be somebody speaking if there's not somebody there to do the speaking? There's nobody here, the, who's the communal, the anonymous communal? There's we have to imagine a voice somehow that's speaking, and it is. Now, critics are not going to go where I'm going with this. Critics are going to. I think critics would be satisfied with anonymous communal. But when I read this, I think if there's a person, how can there be a, a, something spoken if there's not somebody there to speak it? The voice here is communal. It's. It's. We didn't hear this in Melville. Spirit of the South. 
spirit of the self. <laughs> that sounds provincial. The Holy Spirit is not is not confined to a region. Anyway, I just this is don't look these things. I mean, don't look Pat. This is an amazing opening. What Faulkner's doing, nobody had done before. Um, and every story we read is going to be a, about a collective experience. It's going to be about a community of people starting. And every story is something different. Now, one last word before we start, because I want to look at what it was. Um, where was it going? Um, I lost it. God bless. Um, every story is going to be told about a different community and every story is going to be told from a different point of view and what we're going to discover if we continue on is that Faulkner continues to write about these communities and these different layers of time they all took place in his imagination in this place he called Yaknapatafa County and it's why he had such an influence all over the world because here I mean Karen's questioning him the importance Think about the difference between Melville and what's going on here. Faulkner is never outside of that Yaknapatafa county because reality is always interconnected, just as it is for Ishmael, by the way. Every story he tells almost takes us someplace else in this community, so even if we leave, even if we go from one novel to another, we constantly hear about characters who existed in that first novel, even if they don't take a major role in the second novel. So this Yaknapatafa Yaknapatafa County keeps filling out the more and more you read Faulkner, the more you become involved in this larger community because there is this communal, a person doesn't exist in a vacuum. He's not, he's, this could not be more different than Melville and the Isolados. A person is who he is only in relationship to other people. And Faulkner makes that real, probably more real than any modern writer that you'll ever read. So Faulkner's doing a lot of amazing things here. Okay, let's, let's, I'm going to try to get to the core of was, I don't, it looks to me like we won't have time for Fire and Heart, but even if we don't have time for it, make sure you keep reading to get ahead so you take advantage of the time because we're, we're allowing about a month Five, four to five weeks if we take two stories. We should be able to do it so we don't, we don't have to give it as much time as we gave Moby Dick, so keep reading. Anyway, the story begins um, with um, Buck and Buddy, um, and, and by the way, their, their names are the Greek for God and the um, Latin for God. Amodius Theophilus. There's the Greek Roman influence in the education. Okay? Amodius and Theophilus. Both of them are beloved of God. And in the story we learned that um, before the Emancipation Proclamation, these men freed their slaves freely. It was, it was, a, it was a gesture of human love and, and an effort to straighten out what in their minds were wrong. There was no law <coughs> no pressure, they, they freed the slaves. So we already know that I came from one of these men and we know that his father was a good enough man
to want to release the slaves before the war decided the issue politically for, for the South. The story's entitled was, We're Going Back to the Conditions that Produced Ike, because the story's fundamentally about him. But we can't understand him without going back. So here we learn about um, his father and his uncle, um, and what we learn about them is that they freed the slaves. On, on when the story opens, we get the news that Tenny Jim, one of the slaves, has run off to um, Hubert Beauchamp's properly because he's enamored of um, um, Tenny. And periodically he runs off and um, the chase begins. And if you've read it, you know that the whole language of, the, of going after him is in terms of a chase. The, the actual term, I love, for example, one, you know, one phrase when later, when they get close to Hubert's, um, uh, can't, the language is the language of a, What's our read it, go ahead and read it. Um, I mean, are you, are you coming across the, the hunt language? You stay back where he won't see you and the blast shall circle yeah. the woods and we'll yep. Or when they treat him, and there's another one when he, when he got him up, I can't, I'd never even heard of the term, but, but the, the, the language is metaphoric of the hunt. They have to go after um, Tommy's Turl. When they get there, um, <clears throat> Hubert keeps trying to stall Buck from going after Tommy's Turl, and so he invites um, Buck and young Cass, who's nine years old then, into the house on page 10. But at last, a hand began waving a handkerchief. So that would be what for you guys? Huh? 11. But at last, a hand began waving a handkerchief or something white through the broken place in an upstairs. Now remember, one of the beauties of this is we're see we tend to see things through the eyes of a nine-year-old. So there's an innocence about the whole way this story is told. Is told, is, is told. They went to the house, crossing the back gallery, Mr. Hubert, warning them again, as he always did, to watch out, go down a few lines. Then they stood in the hall until presently there was a jangling and swishing noise, and they began to smell the perfume. And Miss Safanza came down the stairs. Her hair was roached under a lace cap. She had on her Sunday dress in beads and a red ribbon round her throat and a little nigger girl carrying her fan. And he stood quietly a little behind Uncle Buck watching her lips until they opened and he could see the roan tooth. He'd never known anyone before with a roan tooth and he remembered how one time his grandmother and his father were talking about Uncle Buddy and Uncle Buck and his grandmother said that Miss Safonza had matured into a fine looking woman once. <laughs> God, you can hear. <laughs> Everybody wants to get the, the two bachelors married, and they're having none of it. Maybe she had. He didn't know. He wasn't at nine. <coughs> well, Mr. Theophilus, she said, and McCaslin, she said. She never looked at him, and she wasn't talking to him now, and he knew it. Although he was prepared and balanced to drag his foot when Uncle Buck did. Welcome to Warwick. He and Uncle Buck dragged their feet. I just come to get my nigger, Uncle Buck said. Then we got to get on back home. Then Miss Afonsba said something about a bumblebee, but he couldn't remember that. It was too fast and there was too much of it. The earrings and the beads clashing and jingling, <laughs> the little chains on a toy mule trotting, and the perfume stronger too. 
like the earrings and beads sprayed out each time they moved and you watched the roan colored tooth glit, <laughs> glit between her lips. Something about Uncle Buck was a bee sipping from a flower to flower and not staying long anywhere and all that stored sweetness to be wasted on Uncle Buddy's desert air. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> you can just see this boy not making sense of all that is put together in, in Safanzua. Anyway, the, um, um, go on over two pages. While the men take their nap, Kaz goes outside, and there he sees Tommy's turtle and goes to him. It's, it's that passage that begins, Ha, Tommy's turtle said? Where is it? Can you, 14. So you guys are two pages ahead of me. Um, and then you mind that neither. I got protection now. All I needs to do is keep old Buck from catching me until I gets the word. What word, he said. Word from who? Is Mr. Hubert going to buy you from Uncle Buck? Huh, Thomas Trill said again. I got more protection than what Mr. Hubert even got. He rose to his feet. I'm going to tell you something to rem remember. I told you guys this earlier. I remember quoting this for you guys. All, particularly all the men here. <laughs> he rose to his feet. I'm going to tell you something to remember. Anytime you want to get something done from hoeing out a crop to getting married, just get the women folk to working at it. Then all you need to do is sit down and wait. You remember that. Then Tommy's throw was gone. Now stop for a second. What's going on? Why does Tommy's throw say that? What's going on? What has to be happening for him to say that to Kaz? Wow. Well, the only two women who are on the property are Tenny and Safanzaba. So they are apparently working. They are apparently, clearly, <laughs> clearly Safanzaba has set this up to get Tommy's there to get Buck there so she can. This is a good hunt. And remember the phrase keeps repeating. This was a good hunt, a good hunt. Come on, you guys. If he wants to get something done, just put the whip. You know Safanza was behind it. Because how does it end that night when Buck goes into bed? Just a coincidence? Let, yeah, let's, let's go there. Um, you, you know that twice Buck and Hubert make these bets. The first time it's... One of those guys where a guy said, I'll bet you $50 and that they're going to get Tommy Stroh. But um, later, because Hubert is trying to get Buck to stay because the one thing he wants is to get rid of his sister. So, and, and the one thing that Buck doesn't want is his sister. So, so they're, going to use, they're going to use anything they can to complete this hunt. Okay? Now, later... Hubert puts the bet to him in earnest then, $500 that they will catch Tommy's that night. And you know what happens when Buck goes to the house and Tommy runs over him and he chases him, he can't get him. So strictly speaking, he, he loses the $500 bet. So that night when they come back home, exhausted and tired, Kaz is following Buck up the stairs Buck has made all these assumptions that the one place that it's safe to go is upstairs in this particular room. Um, oh, here's that phrase. Um, it's 17, so it'll be 19. He says he's going to Earth. You don't have to go there, but there's that other, it's going to Earth. It's one of those um, hunt terms. Um, my page 19, I guess 20, it's just before 3. 21 is when they're going up the stairs. Yeah, the yeah, drive. sorry, 21. 
The house was dark, they could hear Mr. Hubert snoring, but they couldn't hear anything from upstairs even when they were inside the hall. Likely hers will be at the back, says Buck. Keep going down. So Uncle Buck eased himself down into the bottom step. He takes off his shoes. Kaz is helping him. It was dark too, and still there was no sound anywhere except Mr. Hubert snoring below. So they felt their way along the hall towards the front of the house until they felt a door. They could hear nothing beyond the door, and when Uncle Buck tried a knob, it opened. All right, <coughs> Uncle Buck whispered, be quiet. They could see a little now, enough to see the shape of the bed and the mosquito bar. Uncle Buck threw down his suspenders, takes off his pants, worst <laughs> mistake, unbuttoned his trousers and went into the bed and eased himself carefully down onto the edge of it. And he knelt again and drew Uncle Buck's trousers off and he was just removing his own when Uncle Buck lifted the mosquito bar and raised his feet and rolled into the bed. That was when Miss Safanza sat up on the other side of Uncle Buck and gave the first scream. Now, you can imagine the night. What? What? The first one. <laughs> right, because she goes down is crying for the next half, weeping. Um, on the next, this is 21, so I guess somewhere around 23. Hubert wants to get rid of his sister, so he's saying to Buck, now you have to marry her, you, because otherwise you would have dishonored yourself and her. Getting into a bed of the woman in the South, if you're a man of honor, there's only one choice he has. Buck says, be reasonable. Hubert says, reasonable is just what I'm being, Mr. Hubert said. You come into bear country of your own free will in a court all right. You were a grown man and you knew it was bear country and you knew the way out. <laughs> I hope everybody is enjoying the respect these men have for women. <laughs> you come into bear country, you knew the way back out like you knew the way in and you had your chance to take it, but no, you had to crawl into the den and lay down by the bear. And whether you did or didn't know the bear was, he said, doesn't make any difference. Yes, sir, she got you, Felix, and you know it. You run a hard race and you run a good one, but you scun the hen house one time too many. <laughs> now, what we learn is that Kaz will relay all of this to Buddy. And you know between the two men, Buck by his name, Buck is the masculine, he's the stud who probably played around and went from flower to flower. Buddy is the feminine one. He takes care of the kitchen, he cooks, he watches over the house. And everybody knows that if you get into a poker game with him, so he's cunning, clever, wise. Buck is foolish and so um, Buddy comes back with Kaz now <laughs> to rescue Buck, his brother. When he arrives at the plantation at Warwick, remember this is, Safanza wants to make sure that everybody knows this is Warwick because Warwick is named after Warwick in England. It's an aristocratic land in the state. Um, Buck and, I mean Buddy and Hubert um, bet, make another bet, one hand for, the, for um, Tommy's Turrell and Buck's freedom as over against Hubert's dowry. Um, the dowry that Hubert promised um, anybody who would marry Sofonzo. But wait, before we go there, we have to um, read this line. When, when Buck and, and Hubert are, are, where is that line when, when they get into bed? Oh yeah, on, on my 23, so 25, this is when Buck and Hubert are playing cards 
for Buck to get free of marrying her. And um, Hubert says, one hand, draw, you shuffle, I cut, boy deals, $500 against Sibby, and we'll set her this nigger business once for all. If you win, you buy Tanny. If I win, I buy that boy of yours. The price will be the same for each one, $300. Win, Uncle Buck said. One that wins, buys the niggers. Win city, damn it, Mr. Hubert. Win city. What the hell are we setting up in midnight talking? The lowest hand wins. Why is he using the word win instead of, how should this go? Whoever loses is going to get her. Why are they using the word win? Because they're trying to honor her. I mean, they're, this is the, I mean, even though they're saying the loser's gonna have this, um, they're talking about Sib, they're using it, they're using the word win because they're, they're trying to protect her honor. So once again, it's this comic world where what's at stake is actually marriage, and, but what's really going on is that Buck does not want to get married right now, and Hubert wants to do everything he can to get rid of his sister. This is what Buddy faces when he when he comes and they make another deal to get Buck off the hook and get Tenny on their plantation without having to pay for it. So Hubert and Buck play one hand on, on my 25, um, or sorry, um, 20, my, I'm 26, so it should be you 27 or 8. So Hubert says deal, and I don't want to go through the cards right now, but what, what, what comes out in the sequence is Hubert gets a king, two threes, and an ace with one card down. A king, two threes, and an ace. Buddy gets a king, a two, a four, and a five. If anybody plays poker, you know that's called what? It's an inside straight. An outside straight gives you two chances. You can get one or the other card, right? An inside straight means you can only get one card. The card he needs is which one? Two, six, two, four, five. He needs a three. Hubert's got two of them showing, and he knows where the other one is, or the third one, because he's, his down card is a three. He's got three. Three, three threes. Wait, three threes, and Buddy needs one. Now, what's the chances of Buddy getting the three in Hubert's mind? Zero. So, is everybody clear? Those are the cards. You watch the. I mean, you read it. Watch the tension. So, each time a card is go down, Hubert goes deal, deal, deal. All the cards are down, and then. Um, and then this takes place. Deal, Mr. Hubert said, and the hand dealt him was an ace, and Uncle Buddy a five, and now Mr. Hubert just sat still. He didn't look at anything move for a whole minute. He just sat there and watched Uncle Buddy put one hand onto the table for the first time since he shuffled and pinch up one corner of his face-down card and looked at it and put his hand back in his lap. Check, Mr. Hubert said. I bet you them two niggers, Uncle Buddy said. He didn't move. Now, it looks like he's bluffing because he needs a three. Hubert's got three of them, and he's betting the two niggers, including it in the, in the bet. I bet them two niggers. He sat there just like he sat in the wagon or in a horse or in the rocking chair. He cooked against what? Against the $300 Theophilus owes you for Tenny and the 300 you and Theophilus agreed for Tommy's Turo, Uncle Buddy said. 
ha. Then he said, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I hope you can hear the nervousness. Even though he's laughing, he knows this is Buddy. Um, ha. Then he said, well. Then he said, well, well. Then he said, we'll check up for a minute. If I win, you take Sibby without dowry and the two niggers, and I don't owe Felis anything. If you win, Theophilus is free, and you owe him and the $300 for Thomas Turrell. That's just if I call you, Mr. Hewitt. If I don't call you, Felis won't owe me nothing, and I won't owe Felis nothing, unless I take that nigger, which I've been trying to explain to you and him both for years, that I won't have on my place. So he stands to lose nothing if he calls. Okay? Now he's got the stronger hand on the surface of it, on the face of it. Um, go on over, I, and the, I'm not sure in page. And you need a tray, and there ain't but four of them, and I already got three, and you just shuffle. And I cut afterwards, and if I call you, I'll have to buy that nigger. It's right down here. Who dealt these cards, Emodius? Only didn't wait to be answered. He reached out and tilted the lampshade, the light moving up Tommy's turtle. And remember, Tommy Turtle want, would rather be with Buck and Buddy than Hubert anyway. Up Tommy Sturl's arms that was supposed to be black but were not quite white, up his Sunday shirt that goes down. Each time he went to bring him back and onto his face, and Mr. Hubert sat there holding the lampshade and looking at Tommy Turl. Then he tilted the shade back down and took up his cards and turned them face down and pushed them towards the middle of the table. I pass, Commodius, he said. He was still too worn out for sleep. They go back to the house, the animals running again. <laughs> And it ends with Buck saying, as, as Buddy, Buddy and uh, Kaz reach home, damn that fox, Uncle Buck said, go on and start breakfast. It seems to me I've been away, away from home a whole damn month. So things went back to normal, and we know from what happens that Buck and Savanzaba won't marry, I think it's eight years, I can't remember, six or eight years, I think it's eight years after that. But Faulkner has taken us back to the beginning, and what, what he's shown us is this culture, this sense of honor, how important the, the hunt motif is for people's life, um, and something special in the fathers. I mean, with all the foolishness, particularly in Buck, there's a cunning and a patience and a forbearance and a goodness, and something like fortitude or strength, the, the way they deal with these problems. This will be the background that Ike is born into when he comes in so any questions about this before we this is the beginning the, the comic the comic beginning things will get a little bit darker in fire in the hearth it's 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 I call it purgatorial comedy they will get very dark in pantaloons um, when Ryder loses his wife um, and almost goes mad um, but this is the beginning of the Ike story <coughs> I went, but it's, well, I tried to go. I don't know. See, I'm not sure that you would know, since his was the name and bore some of the Indians, but Isaac was not one of these. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. But we'll come to know, we'll come to know in Fire the Heart. Um,
And it's interesting because I don't like taking pain pills Lucas doesn't see it as relinquishing his claim. I couldn't. Lucas, because of his Lucas is sort of giving the claim and trying to get things. He doesn't see that there's something more innocent in what I had two numbers. We learned there that I kind of Oh, it's crazy. I mean, it was really crazy. I never felt that way. You guys have um, a good rest of Lent and. Yes. Yeah, and I hope. Um, you too, Bob. It's wonderful to see all of you. And Jane, thank you. You are. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you're all. Jane, what to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, your grand, that is, that is your one tame Moby Dick. <laughs> your grandkids are going to... I about a whale, and I thought, I'm never going to think of a whale in this <laughs> <laughs>